Um, and then once everybody's situated, I think we'll begin just with a word of prayer. And then we'll get into tonight's lesson, which is a different gospel talking about uh, God's Word not changing. So let me make sure I got this. Yep. All right, let's go ahead and pray and we'll begin tonight. Father God, we thank you for your word. It is true. It is alive. It is the guide for our life today. Lord, we thank you that within it are the answers for the questions we would have and directions for how to be um, successful in this life and successful in building your kingdom for eternity. Lord, we thank you that as we look tonight, we will see and have it revealed to us in a greater way just how true your word is and how it is unchanging, Lord. Why we give it the highest uh, regard, the highest uh, degree of truth in our life. And so we look to it expectant to see these things. We thank you for speaking to us tonight as we study. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 All right, well, tonight we are talking about why God's word does not change and how we are not supposed to change God's Word. Now we're getting back into the answers in the Bible curriculum and uh, it's been well a couple months, two, three months since we last did this and so I thought tonight uh, we'd just start with a couple of words uh, catching up and I thought I'd also just express uh, how much I've enjoyed looking over this curriculum um, just getting to this point and getting prepared for tonight. Um, when Grandpa was telling me about this curriculum that uh, you all were doing um, you know, back when I first arrived here at the church, I loved hearing that this is what we were studying on Wednesdays uh, because I think there is such a need today for knowledge of the Word and more depth of the Word in, in all of our lives. They say, um, I've got a book full of statistics and it says that uh, Today, this, this year, this generation, this time, people are more biblically illiterate than they've been for a very long time. And that's such a sad thing because it's so readily available for everybody to hear the word and to know the word. And so uh, what we are endeavoring to do with this curriculum partially is to give people a deeper knowledge, a deeper understanding of the word. Uh, going back through the Bible from the beginning to the end, showing the way it all connects, the you know threads that bring the Old and New Testament together, the types and shadows that we saw in the Old, uh, revealing what is in the New. Uh, we want to bring light to all of this an increase in our knowledge of the Word. Uh, but I also love this curriculum because of the way that it can unite families in, in the Word. You know, I think I, did, I, I was a youth pastor for a couple of years, and one of the things I noticed with the, the students I had during that time was I could preach to them, you know, for the hour a week, every week, and I noticed which kids talked about the Bible at home and which ones did not. You, you could tell completely. You, you know who was talking about the Word with their family, what family units and houses uh, the, the Word was open conversation and where it was not. Because the ones who talked freely about it with their families, with their parents, they got it. It, it wasn't just a knowledge thing, it wasn't just you know remembering verses. I mean it became a part of their life because um, I think when we see things exemplified by our family, by our parents, the ones we look to to learn about life, um, it, it becomes much more real to us. And so I just want to encourage all the parents that are in here and anybody that's watching on Facebook Live or even if this is at a later date, as we study this word, take it and Talk to your families about it. Speak to your kids about it. When we leave, take these application questions and these things we discuss 
and talk to your kids about them because they're learning the exact same thing tonight in our classes in the um, you know child's rooms in the youth room out in the redemption center we're all learning the same curriculum and part of the reason for that is so that we can have conversations as a family about what this means how it applies in our life and how we can use it as we live as as Christians and so I just encourage you guys as we study tonight See how this can start a conversation after church on the way home because it'll mean a lot to your kids and it'll have great impact in your kids' lives. So with that said, tonight I want to start with an introduction, um, which is really just a review from what we talked about three months ago when we last met with this curriculum. And so um, a couple of the questions that were posed in the last week of this curriculum um, were about how we got our New Testament and settling the case that the way we got the New Testament was Holy Spirit inspired, that it is truly uh, the Word of God, that it carries the authority of God's Word. And so uh, just a few questions to start looking to how we got our New Testament and uh, just settling the, the question that some people have of whether or not it really is God's Word. Um, the thread that tied New Testament authors together, we we studied in our last lesson, was that they all recorded eyewitness accounts under the direction of the Holy Spirit. So everybody who wrote a book that's in our New Testament either was themselves or was recording somebody speaking to them a first-hand account of what Jesus had done, of what God had done. And we know it's directed by the Holy Spirit because there is no way that many different authors could all write their books and there'd be no mistakes, no contradictions. I mean, if you follow an author in the world long enough, they're going to contradict themselves, right? I mean, it's flawless. It is perfect. It's, it's uncontradicting. And that could only happen under the direction of the Holy Spirit. And so we know that they're all tied together uh, because it was eyewitness recordings directed by the Holy Spirit. Uh, the next question posed was, uh, what was the Holy Spirit's role in the production of the New Testament? And that is that the Spirit brought remembrance of what Christ did and what he said so that these men could accurately write down these words. Kind of to the point we just discussed, there would have been contradiction if the Holy Spirit wasn't inspiring them and reminding them and helping them to complete this task of writing our New Testament uh, Bible and canon of Scripture. The, final, the next question is, does anyone recall the approximate date of the final New Testament writings? Just a little bit of history for you. Um, it's commonly agreed on that most books were completed by 70 AD, and the books of John, the Gospel of John and Revelation, were likely finished by AD 90. And so people... Some people, and I've had this conversation myself, some people would say, well, we can't take the New Testament as the Word of God. I mean, who knows if they even remembered what he had done or remembered what he had said, you know, so many years. They could have been written hundreds of years after he was even there. Well, according to historians and people who have studied and and there's been manuscripts and archaeological finds to give proof to this, most were completed within about 40 years of when Jesus would have been crucified and resurrected. And so it wasn't centuries later that this was all recorded and decided. It was the handwritten accounts inspired by the Holy Spirit uh, for these men. And so we know that the Word is true. We know that uh, the Word was directed by God Himself so that we could have our Scripture today. And the last question I'll, I'll kind of give note to here that will lead us into tonight's lesson of don't change God's word is this, why was it necessary for a list of the New Testament canon to be recorded? 
Why was it necessary that we compile these writings inspired by the Holy Spirit, uh, make them our New Testament, and, and commit them to being the authoritative Word of God? And the answer for that, which we would have studied in our last session, is that false teachers were presenting their own writings of scripture and editing the accepted scriptures to their own benefit. Organizing a canon was necessary to respond to these false ideas. And so the reason that we needed an authoritative, settled canon, a settled account of what books are true and are the inspired word of God and which ones are not, which ones would just be commentary, which ones would be uh, opinion, is because there were false teachers present in that time that wanted to twist the word and change the word to their own benefit. And so as we get in tonight's, into tonight's uh, lesson, Don't Change God's Word, it's true that there are warnings in both the Old and the New Testament against changing the word of God. And as I thought about this lesson tonight, I thought I'd, I'd just share kind of a fun little illustration, fun little example. Has anybody ever had my grandma's cooking? I've had a lot of that lately, too much of that lately, even though it's delicious. And something I was thinking about is how she has all of these wonderful recipes and things that she makes, like chicken pasta salad. Oh my. Glory. I mean, that's a, that's a creation inspired by the Holy Spirit, or <laughs> it's, it's good stuff. And I was thinking about the recipe. What would happen if we just took her recipe and just messed it all up? And we just started adjusting stuff. And we just started throwing in our own spices because we had it sitting on the shelf and it'd be easier to throw that in than get what the recipe demanded. What if we started changing up that recipe? Well, it's not going to come out as good. I mean, that chicken pasta salad recipe is like as close to perfection in food as I think we can come. It's delicious. So if we start messing with what's already been made right, what's already good. And, and look, as great as grandma's chicken, chicken pasta salad is, the word is perfect. Amen. There is no, nothing that could be adjusted in the word to make it better. And so any adjustment to the recipe is going to make it worse. Any adjustment to what God's already written and produced for us is going to leave us disappointed. Even if in the moment it seems easier because we've already got this spice, we've already got this thing working in our life, we don't have to adjust, we don't have to change, we don't have to go and get something new. We, like, maybe it's easier in the moment, but the end result's going to leave us worse off. And so we want the word, nothing more and nothing less. So Deuteronomy 4 verse 2 is uh, where we'll start in Scripture tonight. And I believe I've included most of these in your notes. Um, some will be up on the screen as we move forward. But Deuteronomy 4.2, um, to our first point, that in the, both the New and Old Testament were warned against changing the Word of God. We see this warning in Deuteronomy 4. You shall not add to the Word which I command you, nor take from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God which I command you. And so here, uh, the Lord is speaking commandments through Moses to the people of Israel. And what he instructs is, do not change the word that I give you. Do not make adjustment to what I have said, Israel. And I believe the reason for this is because God's intention when he gives his word is for it to be the final say, the final authority. There doesn't need to be more elaboration on what God has said. He doesn't need someone to add to it. What he says is final. What he says is accurate. What he says is true. The word needs no revision. 
And Moses, the other thing I, I see here is that Moses was not giving commands out of his own persuasion, out of his own desire, out of his own understanding. He was receiving commands from the Lord for the people of Israel. You know, I, I, there are times in the Bible where we see and we experience this in our own life where people talk out of themselves, out of their own understanding and knowledge, and they have to revise what they say. Have you ever said, I can't, I won't, I shouldn't, and then later on you have to revise what you've said? I know at Rama, one of the things that was kind of funny is people make the joke, well, don't say you'll never go to the mission field. Don't say you'll never be a pastor. Don't say you'll never do this because you're probably going to end up doing it. And so when we speak out of our own understanding and our own knowledge, many times we are left having to revise what we've said. But with God, that's never the case. That's right. his, his word never fails. It never changes. He, he doesn't need to change it because he knows all. He's omnipotent, omnipresent. He knows enough to not have to ever revise his word. And so we trust uh, that his word needs no changing. In Galatians 1, 6 through 7, we see a New Testament warning also against changing the word. And that scripture reads, I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another. But there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. Paul's writing here and he says, I cannot believe that you would turn so quickly away from the gospel that's changed your life. I can't believe you would turn so quickly away from the message that Jesus brought to us for something that is not a, a true gospel. He says there, and it confused me at first, but he says, which is not another. Which is not another means it's not gospel. It's not God's word. It's not the truth. It might be an image of that. It might have a likeness to it, but it's not the real thing. It's a counterfeit. It's a lesser substitute. And what I see here is that just because something mimics the good news, just because something mimics the gospel, doesn't mean that it's actually good news. Right. Doesn't mean that it's gospel. I think we see that today. There are so many options of things that have a likeness to what Christ taught. You know, I've heard people say before, oh, all religions are the same. They all just preach, be a good person, be kind to others, and, you know, you'll end up okay one day. Well, there might be elements of other religions that have a likeness to Christ. There might be elements of, of other belief systems that have a likeness to what we believe, but none are the same. No. None are true. None are the gospel which we believe in. They may mimic God, but they are not of God. Right. And that's so much like Satan, to take something that is of God and try to deceive people by showing a likeness of God. Satan was, was cast out of heaven because he wanted to be like God, but he's not. He never has been and he never will be. So as he tries to present a likeness to the things of God, he's always going to be left under, always going to be left in failure, always going to be left uh, lesser than what the truth of the word is. And so when people um, go after that mimicked thing of God, they're going to always be disappointed and always will always end in failure because it's not of God and it's not the truth. And I think of Grandma's illustration, the little bit of poo in the brownie. I'm sure you've heard that before. You know, if, if I make a batch of brownies and I put just a little bit of poo in it, would you still want to eat it? No. That would be gross. And that's how it is with, with religious teachings that add to the gospel or take away from the gospel. 
It, it might not be a totally different thing, but just enough of it is different to get you directed away from God, to get you tricked and deceived and fooled. And so we have to guard so carefully teaching that is not holy the Word of God, holy the Gospel. That's what we want to pursue. And the twisting of the truth, which, which Paul is writing about here, he says, uh, there are some who trouble you and want to pervert, pervert the gospel of Christ. There are some that want to pervert the gospel of Christ. What I see here is that uh, there are individuals who make a deliberate attempt to fool God's children. They make a deliberate attempt, attempt to fool people of the world into going away from God. They themselves have been deceived and so bought into another way of believing, a false way of believing, that they are now deliberately trying to pull people away from the truth. And that is absolutely a tactic of the devil. He wants people pulled away from the truth, because if he can get people away from the truth, the gospel, then he's left them powerless, he's left them vulnerable to his attack. And that's just not God's plan for any of us. Amen? And so, uh, another scripture that comes to mind in thinking about the deliberate attempt from the enemy to fool believers is Ephesians 6 verse 12. We know that that says, We war not against flesh and blood, but spiritual things, powers, principalities, evil spirits. And so, even knowing that there are people that are being used to deliberately pull people away from Christ, I will say, I feel a level of compassion towards individuals that have been deceived. I feel sorry for the people that don't know the truth. I feel sorry for the people that have fallen into Satan's trap and become so ensnared in it that they are now themselves being used by the enemy. You know, I, I, I don't always feel sorry for a person who's getting beat up in a fight. Or, I'm sorry, I mixed my words up there. I don't feel sorry for the bully that's beating someone up but I do feel sorry and compassion towards the person who's being beat. And people that are deceived and people that are, are you know, just promoting a false gospel, a twisted gospel, they are getting beat up by the devil. Because you know if, if they're preaching something that's not Jesus, then they don't have Christ in their life and they're vulnerable to what the devil wants to do to them. They're getting beat up. And so even, even recognizing that there are people that, that preach a false gospel, and that gets me fired up. I, I hate hearing people preach any gospel other than the name of Jesus, any, any truth other than the name of Jesus, because it's not true. It's false. That gets me fired up. But I don't get mad at the person. I get mad at what the devil's doing through them. Right. I, I want that person to come to know the truth that I know. I want that person to know my Savior, Jesus. I want them to find the truth. And so I think even in knowing that there is deception and a twisting and a perverting of the word through individuals, I don't get mad at the individual. I get mad at who's motivating them to do it. I get mad at the devil and what he's trying to do. And I start taking authority over him and saying, that person's going to see the truth. That person's going to know Jesus Christ. That person's going to get delivered from what the enemy's doing to them and through them right now. And God's going to get glory when it happens. Because when someone leaves that and they start telling the world about all the falsity within it, it has a great power to free people from the lies of the enemy. Amen? Another scripture we see 
as we go through the scriptural background, is uh, Revelation 22, verse 18 through 19. And we're going to come back to this um, towards the end of the teaching tonight. It says, For I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to these things, God will add to him the plagues that are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of prophecy, God shall take away his part from the book of life, from the holy city, and from the things which are written in this book. What I see reading this is that God takes the authority of his word very seriously. God takes the sharing of his word accurately and truthfully very seriously. Again, to reiterate what's already been said, the word is complete and it does not need to be added to. I believe this is what God is saying here in Revelation 22, 18 through 19. He makes a comparison. I don't want anybody adding to my word. I don't want anybody subtracting from my word. And as we read uh, earlier tonight, I don't want anybody twisting or perverting my word. God says don't subtract, don't add, and don't change. Do not change the word. It's complete in and of itself. It does not need uh, a man to add you know, another verse, another chapter, another book. There's no sequel to the word coming out. There's no revised edition to the word coming out. It is and will be complete. And I will say this, there's a difference between preaching or writing about the scripture that has already been written, identifying what God has already spoken as his word, and, and writing new chapters versus preaching it or teaching it or, or trying to um, translate it accurately. You know, when the Bible was put into English for the first time, centuries after it had been uh, originally compiled, they were not trying to rewrite the word. They were trying to put the word into a format that people could understand it. And there is a huge difference between trying to interpret the word for somebody, trying to translate and give someone understanding of what the word already says, and trying to add new meaning to the word. Trying to add new verses, add new chapters, add new doctrine to the word. This is where we get into false teaching, false prophecy. And, and listen, there, there's going to be error when people teach the word, when people preach the word. I will have moments where I error in what I preach or teach because I'm a human and there are going to be moments that I misunderstand. I, 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 I don't have the full revelation maybe yet. And I know Grandpa, even as we talked um, some well, the last month or two, he said, you know, I look back at some of the sermons I preached and I just think, God, forgive me. <laughs> and that's a great man who's preached the word faithfully for 40 years. I would never call him a false prophet or a false teacher. That's a man who's been faithful to preach as accurately as he knows how the word of God. And there's a big difference between a motivation that, you know, I intend to lead people away from the truth. And I am, I am giving everything I have to show people the truth of the Lord and, and the truth of the word. And so the, the motivation is a big part of it. And God is the one who judges our motivation. He knows our heart. And so, um, you know, we read in Galatians 1, 6 through 7, uh, there are some who want to pervert the gospel. There are some who want to because they're being motivated by demonic forces and the enemy. But the children of light, we give our best to preach truthfully, to preach accurately. And so I, I, I just want to make that distinction that there is a difference between preaching intentionally bad word, bad doctrine, 
false, trying to lead people away, adding to or taking away from the word, and preaching for people to understand. There's a big difference in that. And so um, I I was going to finish up Revelation by saying this. It becomes serious uh, when someone tries to deceive by giving their words equal weight to God's. I think this is the moment where it becomes false prophecy. Is I'm saying that my word and these verses that I'm making up, these books of the Bible that I just feel like need to be added, when I give that equal weight to what God has said, I'm a false prophet. When I take my word and say it's equivalent to what God has said in his canon of scripture, I'm now speaking of false prophecy, of false doctrine. And so we can recognize even as, as we listen to people talk, whether what they're preaching is the Word of God, you know, translated and interpreted and explained through them, or if it is new and I'm saying my Word is equal to that of God's. You know, when I listen to preachers preach, because I listen to preachers preach too and teach, when I listen to that, I listen to Scripture in a different way than I listen to their words. I, you know, do, do you as well? When you hear a preacher preaching, when I see Scripture, I mean, I am totally sold, totally locked in. What they say about it afterwards, I discern and I weigh out with my spirit because that's the word of man. And praise God, they're being faithful to bring their understanding and revelation um, to us. And I'm thankful for that, but I'm still going to weigh it out with my spirit because that's the word of man. Scripture is the word of God. And so uh, to go on, uh, to get to our second point here, about 25 minutes in. <laughs> the second point in our scriptural background tonight is that this is Satan's oldest trick in the book. It really is. Um, his oldest trick against mankind is to twist and change the words of God. In Genesis 3.1, says, Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord had made. He said to the woman, Has God indeed said... You shall not eat of every tree of the garden. And then he goes on, and after this conversation, and Eve says, well, we can't eat it because God said that then we would die. He goes, surely you will not die. He takes away from the word of God. He discounts the authority of the word of God. Um, He questions and denies the authority of God's word and the truth of God's word. He falsely represents and misinterprets what God says, and that leads Eve and Adam and mankind to fall to sin. Mm -hmm. See, it's his oldest trick in the book when it comes to us. If he can get you to believe something other than what God has said, then he's deceived you. And so we want to be guarded against that, don't we? We want to guard ourselves against the enemy deceiving us uh, by believing anything other than the word of God as, uh, as the highest, you know, thing of truth, the form of truth. Uh, So moving on to our third point, now that we know that uh, both the New and Old Testament are warning us against changing God's word, and we see that Satan uh, does, in fact, use it as a tool against us, we ought to take interpretation of the word seriously. And uh, an account of that in the word is in Acts 17, 10 through 12. And we're going to look at the church of Berea, because they are uh, a great example of a church that took the word and interpretation of it very seriously. They took setting of doctrine and um, you know, word of prophecy, word of teaching very seriously. So it says in Acts 17 here, Then the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. When they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. These were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica in that they received the word with all readiness, 
and searched the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. Therefore, many of them believed, and also not a few of the Greeks, prominent women and as well as men. And so, in hearing the word of God, in hearing what God was saying to them, the first thing I see is that they were open to hearing God's word. You know, they wouldn't have had access to the materials we do today. They would have probably not had a, a compiled Bible that they all had at home or a phone with, you know, every translation they would want to find on it. They were much more limited in what they got. And so to have somebody come and hear the word preached, that was a, a big deal. And, and for them, being open to hear it says that they received the word with readiness. But it's what they did next that I think is so great. They received with readiness because they were hungry for truth. They wanted to know what God was saying. And I think that's a, an attitude that we all have to have in our heart is, I want to know. I want to know the truth. I want to hear what God has to say to me through his word. And because they were hungry for it and they wanted the true thing and the real thing, What's, what it says next is, I think, what is such a good example for us uh, to follow. It says, they searched the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. They refused to take God's word from men alone. They, obviously, they did have access to scripture because they searched the scriptures to find uh, validity of what Paul was preaching. They refused to take the word of men alone. They wanted verification from the word of God. You know, God always verifies his word. I, I heard uh, Brother Hagin say one time, he goes, there's always at least two scriptures for any doctrine that's of God because he confirms it and he validates it. He doesn't just leave it up to chance or leave it up vague where anybody can take any interpretation. The word is something he will reveal, but then he will also validate. Yeah. He, he doesn't leave it just up to our understanding, but thank God he's also given us the Holy Spirit to help us in understanding. We can search the scriptures to verify that which is being preached and taught and, and prophesied by men. We also have the Holy Spirit to help direct us in knowing what is true and what is not. He will help us to discern that which is good and that which is evil. And we talked about that, oh, three Wednesdays ago when we last had a Wednesday service. And so um, I believe that if we're diligent to search the word, we can be confident in what we believe. If we're diligent to search the word for truth, then we can be confident in what we believe in. You know, if we know that the word is the final authority and the final truth that God has given us, then if we're diligent to search out the things we believe and find them in scriptures, then we have total confidence in what we believe. We will have total assurance in the things we believe. And that's something that I don't think other people can say. There, there aren't other religions that verify themselves the same way God's Word does. They're not as cohesive and uh, without contradiction as God's Word is. But His Word is perfect. And so, diligence to search for verification will guard us against this false doctrine, against false teaching. It will stop us or anyone else from changing God's word. We won't take false doctrine, we won't take false teaching because our diligence to study out what the word says will guard us against um, deception. And I don't want to be deceived, do you? And you know, as I wrote that point out, something I, I saw even in that is that I think some of the deception we see from time to time is a result of laziness. I think people are deceived because they don't take the care and diligence to guard themselves by studying the Word. Right. You know, there are days where 
it's not the most exciting thing to sit down and read your Bible for an hour. Now, I'm a pastor and I'll say that. I have days that, I mean, I can't read enough. Time's flying by. But there are moments where it's not the most, you know, I could think, well, I could be, Grandpa would say I could be watching the Vikings. I, I think I could be out hunting or doing something like that, you know, something exciting. Guarding yourself with the word, being diligent, is action against the enemy. It's taking action offensively and defensively against what the devil's plan is. Because not only are you guarding yourself, but you're preparing yourself to give a defense and an account to someone else. You're preparing yourself to go out as a weapon against the deceit that the devil has intended for the world around you and tell people you're missing it in a loving way. Amen. And so we're, gonna, we're even going to get to that here in our next point about as we get into the apologetic section of tonight's lesson, how it is that we are supposed to use this truth and uh, guard of the word against false doctrine and false teaching, how we're supposed to use it um, to, to change the world and change the beliefs of people in the world uh, in favor of the gospel and in favor of Christ. And the word uh, that we're going to get into now as we, as we begin the apologetic section is tolerance. Tolerance. Tolerance is a word today that has been misconstrued and, and twisted, kind of how we're talking about word being twisted tonight, to mean something that it really doesn't mean. I like this definition of tolerance that we see under point one here. True tolerance involves understanding positions of others, knowing why you disagree, living alongside them, and confronting their false ideas with biblical truth. Man, that's not the definition of tolerance you would hear today, is it? Yeah. I've talked to some tolerant people, and the tolerance that I see held by many people today is, if you disagree with me, don't talk to me. I don't want to hear it. I don't want to know what you think or believe or say. My tolerance is isolation. And that's not true tolerance. I like this definition because tolerance, true tolerance, means I care enough about you as a, a, an individual, I want to know what you believe. I want to understand what it is that, that you believe, but I'm also going to know enough to know why I disagree with you. I'm going to live alongside you. That means that we're not at war every time we come into contact with each other. That means every time your Facebook profile pops up, I don't roll my eyes and get ready to make a snarky comment. This is saying I can live alongside you in a peaceable, Christ-like way knowing what I believe, knowing what you believe, and I have the ability to confront your false ideas with biblical truth. I don't think this means we're going to go to war over our differences of belief, but what it means is I can defend what I believe. I can give you the reasons in the Word that I believe the things I do. Going back to what I said a minute ago, this, the, the degrading of what tolerance really is is probably a result of laziness on our part as a society. And I'm not just saying like us in here or, or Christians, but just people. You know, people on all sides, I, I think, have gotten lazy with belief saying, I'm going to believe it because it's what I believe. And that's enough. No, I believe it because it's what the Word says. I believe it's because it's what God says. And I'm going to know why I believe it. I'm going to be prepared to give an account of why I believe it. And I'm going to live alongside people in a peaceable, Christ-like way so that they want to know what I believe. You know, if your life is just so offensive to everyone that they don't want to hear anything you have to say, well then, 
you're not going to be able to share much truth. You make yourself ineffective in that way. We make ourselves ineffective when we approach life that way. And so I really love this definition of tolerance, that we understand the positions of others. We know why we disagree. We can live alongside them and confront their false ideas with biblical truth. As I said a moment ago, tolerance has been twisted into an attack on definitive truth. I think the attitude towards tolerance today is you cannot express disagreement. And I think that that is, again, just such, such a tool of the devil to keep people ignorant of the truth. Because he knows he's wrong. The devil knows he's wrong. And so if he can get people to believe that tolerance is nobody talks about it, then nobody's going to talk about it. There's going to be pressure to just not talk about it. And the problem with that is our truth, the, the truth, will never come out to the people who need to hear it. Because if the people who need to hear it view tolerance as, just don't talk to me because you disagree with me, we can't express disagreement because that's hate speech. Then the enemy has stopped the truth from going out. The enemy has stopped the light from shining to the world. We need to be able to have conversations with people we disagree with so that our light can reach their dark place. <clears throat> and so we believe that true tolerance is the ability to discuss the word with others in, in a peaceable way that is beneficial and helps them grow in their understanding um, as well as reaffirming what we believe. Have you ever talked to somebody about what you believe and why you believe it? That'll build your faith. That'll leave you more sure of what you believe if you're prepared and if you have guarded yourself by knowing the word. See, if we're proactive about this apologetics thing and knowing what we believe so that we can give an account of it, we're going to be left more sure than we ever were before. <clears throat> and so part of our calling, as I, I alluded to it a moment ago, part of our calling to be the uncovered lights of the world is to be willing to have an accurate tolerance with others, a true kind of tolerance with others. This would mean that we reject... We reject being ignorant of other people and their beliefs. That's kind of the, their beliefs don't affect me, so I don't care attitude. I do care because I care about that person. I care about that person's eternity enough to care about what they believe. You know, if, if we care about where people end up, then we have to care about what they believe. And that's that first part of true tolerance, understanding the positions of others. I'm going to care about what they believe because I care about where they go when they die or when Jesus comes back. The next part is becoming knowledgeable in your own beliefs. We've uh, covered that already, and that's really kind of a, a main point in why we're doing this curriculum. Uh, point three, being able to treat people with the fruit of the Spirit and characteristics of love. That, that's our living alongside them. We need to be treating people with love, treating people with respect, treating people with the fruit that the Holy Spirit puts in us. I mean, as I said just a little bit ago, if we're so repulsive to everybody because of the way we behave, then we're going to be pretty ineffective in reaching anyone for Jesus. Amen? Um, and then the fourth thing which we mentioned is confronting their false ideas with biblical truth, being able to speak truth into their life, not based on our opinions, but based on the definitive standard of God's Word. We should speak based on the Word of God. Not on what we think, not on what we feel, not on our opinion of things. But when we confront somebody's beliefs, 
It should be because I know that the Bible is the truth and this is what it says. When we take ourselves out of the equation, we let God's power work. Unchanged by our opinions. And that's a good thing. 1 Peter 3.15 says, But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to anyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. And so just furthering that point, we need to be ready. We need to be proactive about knowing the word, guarding ourselves with it so that we can share it with others. Moving on to the second point in our apologetics and historical background section. God takes prophecy seriously and has given us the tools to recognize and discern what is good and what is false. Aren't you glad that God gave you the tools to do this? I am. Deuteronomy 18, uh, verses 17 through 22, and I'm going to have to bump this ahead a little bit. All right, there we go. Deuteronomy 18, 17 through 22. It says, And the Lord said to me, They are right in what they've spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I, will, I myself will require it of him. But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, the same prophet shall die. <clears throat> and if you say in your heart, how may we know the word that the Lord has not spoken? He says this, when a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word that the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You need not be afraid of him. And there's a lot to unpack in, in that section of Scripture. Um, the very first thing I see and want to bring out um, in this study is that God said in verse 18, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. Now, uh, with the translation we have up on the screen, the capitalization is, is not as it is um, in the worksheet and in my New King James Bible. When I read it in, in my Bible, it, there's a capital P on that prophet. And that prophet, a prophet, the singular prophet that's being referred to there is Jesus Christ. God says all the way back in Deuteronomy through Moses, I will raise up for them a prophet, one prophet, who is like you from among your brothers from Israel, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. He's talking about Jesus. He's confirming, uh, well, he's giving a shadow here what he will confirm later in Acts 3, 22 through 26. He goes on and reiterates this, and I don't know if this is in your notes, but I'll read it aloud here. Acts 3, 22 through 26, he says, For Moses truly said to the fathers, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. Him, through him you shall hear in all these things whatever he says to you. And it shall be that every soul who will not hear that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. Yes, and all the prophets from Samuel and those who follow as many as has have spoken have also foretold of these days you are sons of the prophets and of the covenant which God made to our fathers saying to Abraham and in your seed all families shall be of the earth shall be blessed to you first God having raised up his servant Jesus sent him to bless you in turning away every one of you from your iniquities he says I'm the prophet I am a prophet who's like you that God will bring all his truth through. He will bring his word to you through me. I'm the prophet. 
And so Jesus is confirming what was said in Deuteronomy long ago. And we know too that, um, is it in this one or I think it's in this next one. He says, and whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. He's saying there's going to come a day that what Jesus, what the Christ, what the Messiah says, I will demand it from every person. And we know that there will be a day of judgment where God will demand from every person, did you say yes to what Jesus Christ said? Did you say yes to my word that I brought through Jesus Christ? It will be required. And so uh, we see here that we're given tools to discern true prophecy. Uh, the second half of this verse, after we see that Jesus is, in fact, that prophet that was spoken about, how there is you know, this tied thread of the Old Testament and New Testament regarding prophecy and true prophecy. He gives us this and says, this is how you're going to know if a prophet is of God, if it's a true prophet, or if it is not. He says, uh, when a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that's a word the Lord's not spoken. The prophet's spoken it presumptuously. You don't need to be afraid of him. Another way we could say you don't need to be afraid of him is he doesn't have power because he's not a true prophet. He says the way you will recognize true prophets from false prophets is false prophets will not speak what's true. What they say will not come to pass <clears throat> because I will not honor what is not of me. I will not um, fulfill what I've not spoken. God, God fulfills his word, but when men try to put their words in God's mouth, well, we don't push God into a corner. Amen? We're not going to tell God what he needs to say, and no false prophet's ever been able to make God say something that he wasn't saying. And so we can recognize false prophecy uh, by recognizing whether what a prophet has said comes to pass or if it does not. We also see here that uh, the warning against false prophecy is very serious. We'll head to our next scripture, John 12, 44 through 46. It says, And Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. Whoever believes in me is really believing in the Father. You're believing that God is fulfilling what he said he would fulfill. And whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. I've come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. I've come to reveal truth to people. If you believe what I've spoken, then you're believing the words of the Father because he was the true prophet. And so, uh, as we saw in Deuteronomy, it was foretold about back with the days of Moses. It was confirmed in Acts 3 and also confirmed here in John that Jesus was the true prophet. And so, even that is a question of apologetics that I've encountered before, and you may in your life as well, where someone says, well, how do you know Jesus was really the prophet? How do you know Jesus was really God's son? For example, um, and I think on our, our sheet, the extra one we have, the um, different gospel, it may have Islam on there. I think it does. I don't know if it says it on, on this uh, sheet, but one of the beliefs of Islam is that uh, Jesus was a prophet and he was a good prophet, a good person, but you know he lied about being God's one son. I don't think that's a very good prophet who would lie about being the Messiah. And so they contradict themselves. You know, and we see that no other religion, no other belief system has the complete, uncontradicted truth that we have um, in our word and in Christ. And so Jesus is the prophet. He was spoken about thousands of years ago in Deuteronomy, and it was confirmed and fulfilled both in John and in Acts. Amen. Mm -hmm. 
And so we can know that Jesus is the true prophet. When somebody says, well, how do you know? You can say, well, I've got a 2,000 year time difference that says the exact same thing and it all points to Jesus Christ. And that's apologetics. That's how we defend what we believe. Warning against false prophecy. It's serious. This um, scripture in Deuteronomy says that that prophet will die. It's serious. False prophecy, false teaching, someone intentionally trying to turn people away from Jesus. It's serious. And the reason that it's serious is because it, God's word reflects his character. If someone speaks presumptuously on God's behalf, he is speaking against God's character. He's leading people astray. And that's a serious concern to God because he wants people to be led down the right path. So false prophecy, we know it's an attack of the enemy. Um, We're going to move along on this last bit because we are running out of time. The third point for apologetics is that the Holy Spirit is part of how we know truth and, and what is false. The Holy Spirit came on people to speak God's word. We see this in 2 Samuel. It says, The Spirit of the Lord spoke by me, and His word was on my tongue. David recognizes that God spoke through him. And it was God's Spirit coming upon him that gave him the words to speak. We, uh, we see, too, Jesus, in His earthly ministry, what, what He did, what He spoke. It came from the Father, but we know that the Spirit was upon Him while He was ministering on earth. Don't we? In Luke 3, verse 22, it says, And the Holy Spirit descended in bodily form like a dove upon Him. And a voice came from heaven which said, You are my beloved Son, in you I am well pleased. And then He went out, and for three years He performed miracles and taught people about God in heaven. The Spirit spoke through people. And the good news for you and I today is that we are the temple that the Holy Spirit lives in today. Hallelujah. Let's look at a couple scriptures. 1 Corinthians 3.16 says, Do you not know that you are the temple of God? And that the Spirit of God dwells in you. Praise the Lord. I'm so glad that the Spirit of God dwells in me. Luke 12.12 says, For the Holy Spirit will teach you in the very hour what you ought to say. When you're having to give a defense for your faith, the Holy Spirit will give you the right words to say. Now, I want to say this about that. Colossians 3.16 says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with the grace in your hearts to the Lord. It says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Richly. If you don't allow the word to dwell in you richly... You're not giving the Holy Spirit a basis to work on. You're not giving Him the substance to bring back up to the surface from within you. You've got to have the Word in you. And this goes back to being diligent to study the Word so that you know the truth and are prepared to give a defense and an account for what you believe. We have to have the Word within us in a rich way. And praise God, He he will move and work through us even when... We miss it and and are unprepared. But let me tell you what, if I can keep myself from being unprepared, I'm going to do it. I want to be one who is faithful, that God can count on as much as he can count on any person. Because we all fail, we all come short at times. But I'm not just going to sit under the guise of, well, I'm going to fail sometimes, so I might as well not even try. No, sir. I'm going to be diligent. I'm going to get the Word in me richly. I'm going to study the Word and prepare a defense to guard my heart 
against the deception of the enemy. So that in the moment that the Holy Spirit wants to speak through me, there is substance for him to bring back to my remembrance. Because he'll do it. He'll bring it back to your memory. But it's got to be in your memory to start with. Amen? And so we want to be diligent in this way. These were people. David, Jesus, you and I being those that the Spirit dwells in. People who allow the Word to dwell in them also. The Holy Spirit does not create new scriptures for us today. He stirs up the ones that are inside of us and brings revelation and wisdom to them. The Holy Spirit's not going to give you new scriptures to add to your Bible, but He will teach you about what the scriptures in your Bible say. And He will show you how to apply them in life. He will give you the wisdom and revelation to go deeper and, and have greater understanding of what they mean and to share with other people. Hallelujah. And so, the gifts of prophecy... The final point I had written out in in this section on the Holy Spirit, the gifts of prophecy today, as they're described in 1 Corinthians 12, we talked about those Sunday, will always line up with the Word because it is of the same God and the same Spirit who inspired our Bible. He doesn't contradict himself. Hasn't done it one time since the beginning. And he's not going to start with a word of prophecy through any one of us. (laughs) And so one of the ways we can judge prophecy is how does it line up with the word? Does it contradict the word? Does it add to or subtract from the word? It never will because God's word is consistent. And in the last few minutes we have here, I did have one more section. I guess that'll just be for you to take home and look at. Um, I want us to go through the three ways to test what God's word is and is not. How we recognize false teaching. And then uh, we're going to spend just a few minutes on the application um, section that came with this lesson. Because I believe this is where um, we can, it gives us some tools for having conversations with students, with relatives, with people that maybe believe differently. Or or people who are figuring out what they believe. Uh, We want to have these application conversation so we can know how to apply the word for ourselves. So how we test the claims, how we test prophecy, how we test teaching. There are three ways um, that we can know if it is God's word or not. The first is, does it make false predictions? We saw that back in Deuteronomy. You'll know it's a false prophet because what they say isn't going to happen. If somebody's making prediction after prediction and prophecy after prophecy and nothing's ever happening... I'd say there's a good chance that their claims are false, that they're probably uh, a false prophet or a false teacher. The next way we can test the claims that we hear, um, teachings that we would hear, is does it add to or take away from the 66 books of the Bible? If we believe that the Bible is the complete and unchanging, unfailing Word of God, then any prophecy, any teaching we hear will not take away from or add to the books that are contained within it. The word's complete in and of itself. Nobody needs to add or subtract. And then the third point, uh, similar to, to our second, is does the teaching, does the prophecy make statements that contradict the Bible? If somebody's teaching and, and they're saying, well, you're saved by your good deeds and your works, and then maybe you can hope to go to heaven. Well, I know a scripture that says I'm saved by grace through faith. And so if you're telling me something that contradicts what I'm reading in my word, then I know that that's false. I know that that's a lie. I know that that's deception. That that's the path the devil wants me to walk down because, well, he's, he's got me moving where he wants me. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to move where he wants me. 
And I don't want to let other people move where he wants them. Right. I want people to find the light. I want people to find the path that is narrow and leads to Jesus in his life. Amen. Amen. Let's look at just a few of our application questions. And, and these are the ones, again, that I would just encourage. If you've got a young person or an older person or any person that, that is open to having conversations about the Word and what we believe, uh, these are some great questions that we could um, get into with them. Our first question is how would you respond if someone says that he follows a different prophet who has heard from God and that the Bible needs to be reinterpreted for us to understand it correctly? I'll just let you think about that for a second. How would you respond to somebody who shows up knocking on your door and says that, I follow a different prophet, someone who's heard from God again, and the Bible just needs to be reinterpreted for us to understand it correctly? <clears throat> I have, I've written these out, and um, the first answer I would give to this application would be, ultimately it comes down to an issue of authority. False predictions and internal contradictions can be used. Uh, as Christians, we must never abandon the authority of the Bible as we defend the faith. It is the sword we wield in the spiritual battle, and we should not step into the battle and leave it on the sidelines. We need to carry the word with us. And so the, the you know, argument against the word here is that, well, there's been another prophet. There's been further revelation, and we need to add these books to the word. Well, the Bible's pretty clear in Revelation 22 about what happens if you add to the Word of God, and I don't want any part of that. Amen? And so we can point to our Word. It's, it's the answer for us. And, and if somebody claims that they follow the Word and they just know more of it than we do, well, I would say, what about the Scripture that says don't add? Because it's, it's a pretty, pretty good answer, pretty good apologetic argument against um, that kind of false teaching. The next question we would have is, uh, many religious people use biblical words like atonement and forgiveness, but they apply unbiblical definitions to these words. Which of the three categories of error does this fit into, and why is it so dangerous? And this would fall into adding or taking away from God's word. Adding a new definition, adding a new meaning, or taking away from the true meaning of a word that's used in our Bible. <clears throat> scripture is used to interpret Scripture. Scripture validates Scripture. So we must derive our definitions of spiritual terms from the Bible. If we're talking about something like salvation or repentance, and, and we're using it in our belief system and how uh, we interact with God, our definition needs to come from the Bible. Not even Webster's you know, dictionary. It needs to come from the Word because Scripture validates Scripture. Let's move on and get to these last couple how do we guard against being influenced by language that sounds biblical but carries different definitions? This kind of goes along with our uh, last question. We need to ask questions so that we can get to the heart of what the other person is trying to say. You know, people who come from various, various religious backgrounds, sometimes what a word means to them is different than what it means to us. So they can start talking about, you know, these things or these sacraments or these they can talk about all these religious words. What's important is, what do you really mean by that? I explain what happens between you and God when, when that word that you're using happens in your life. And as we get down to the heart of what these words really mean, we begin to see um, you know, what they believe to be true. And, and that helps us. If we know our word, we can tell them, well, you're on or you're not on. <laughs> and here are the scriptures that would say um, for or against what, what is what it is that you're doing. Um, two more we've got here. 
If a prophet claims to be speaking for God but is found to be a false prophet, what or who is the source of the prophecies? Well, we know that they're not from God. And uh, Deuteronomy 18 verse 20 would tell us that they are from other gods. Uh, Deuteronomy 18.20 says, But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name which I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that prophet shall die. They're speaking in the name of a God that is not ours. And then going on, uh, the Bible points out in 2 Corinthians 11 that it is Satan who transforms himself into an angel of light to deceive people. He ministers the demons, his ministers, the demons, are power, are the power behind false gods that promote these false teachings. So if we take it all the way back according to what the word says, any false prophecy, any false teaching that's intentionally done goes back to Satan. He wants God's people deceived. He wants the world deceived. And false teaching is, is the avenue he uses to try to do that. Um, and then our final point tonight, how do we guard against being influenced by language. Oh, I'm sorry, I went the wrong direction. Let me go down. Why is it important to be able to discern who false prophets are? And this is really the heart of tonight's message. Why is it important that we can see and discern false prophecy and false prophets? And this is the answer. For the sake of the purity of the gospel and the acclaim of Christ. We must prevent ourselves from being swayed by false teachers or allowing other people to be swayed by them. Ultimately, the eternal state of man and woman is at stake. And we must do this out of compassion for their souls and for the glory of God. We do it because we love people. We want to be in heaven one day with our Savior, with our Lord, with our God the Father in heaven, with the Holy Spirit and all the body of believers. And I want to see all the people outside these walls there. Don't you? And so this is why we do it. This is why we take the care to, to be guarded and prepared against false teaching and false prophets. Let's pray tonight as we close this service out. Father God, we thank you for your word uh, that teaches us and shows us both how to speak towards the issue of false prophecy, false teaching, and the individuals through whom that is brought into the world. God, I thank you that you show us how to discern what is true and what is not, that you would give us the wisdom and understanding moving forward in life. Holy Spirit, I pray that you bring up um, this message, this teaching, your word regarding these things. Anytime we encounter something that we're not sure is the true word, of God. Anytime we hear a word spoken, a, a prophecy given, Lord, I pray that we measure it and weigh it against your word, against what you have already completed and spoken in the 66 books of our Bible. Lord, thank you for bringing your word to us today, complete, whole, and true. We don't need to add or take or change anything from it, Lord. It is perfect in and of itself. We thank you for the word, which is our measure in balancing out the things we encounter in life. We praise you for it, and we go in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Thank you for coming. You are dismissed.